What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Storyman Podcast, episode 133. I forgot my line. <laughs> and I am Matt Michelados. <laughs> it's beautiful. All right. Take two. All right. I think did it throw you off that we didn't try to interrupt you before you started? No, I'll That's tell you. Exa- yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I thought one thirty three. Jesus was thirty three. What's the what's the tie in? Just let it go. That was the thought process that was in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, "Why isn't Jr. talking?" Oh boy! All right. Amazing. Grace, how sweet. <laughs> What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Storyman Podcast, episode 133. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Michelatos. We are the Storyman, and we write podcasts, blog, all kind of stuff over at NorvalRogers.com. Today, we are talking to a movie producer, and the movie of our conversation is Last Days in the Desert, an interesting perspective of Yeshua's days under the temptation story of the Gospels, played by Ewan McGregor, and we will be getting to that interview shortly. But first, we have some major storyman news. And I am talking, of course, about the fact that my Pittsburgh Penguins are up three games to one in the Stanley Cup Finals. One kim- woot, woot. That's okay. the most relevant thing going on in the storyverse <laughs> right now, for sure. For JR, all. do you have any news in the storyverse? Uh, there might be there might be other news, JR. I do. You guys, uh, I am finally pub- – you, you fellow, my fellow co-hosts and brothers-in-arms, uh, knew have known this for a while, but I'm finally publicly allowed to say that I have signed a book contract with InterVarsity Press. Woohoo! It's amazing. So What's the by, title of the book? The working title is Empathy for the Devil. Ooh. Nice. Starring Ewan McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually was real pleased when we watched Last Days in the Desert and I saw such a an empathetic portrayal of Satan. I thought, oh, I'm surely going to be able to use this in my book. Time. So, so yep. what's the what's the like elevator pitch on your book? Can you are you allowed to share that? Oh yeah, yeah. My elevator pitch for the book is Maybe the bad guys in the Bible aren't as bad as you think. Mm. Uh, and so I'm playing off the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is when you connect with and relate with someone uh, and you you uh, feel what they feel. And empathy is more of an understanding. You, you don't necessarily have to condone mm. or agree with someone to have empathy for them. And so I'm saying, let's let's look at I have seven biblical villains that I am investigating and I am helping the readers to develop empathy for them understand why cain killed abel understand why herod ordered the babies uh killed at christmas time understand why why delilah would betray samson i thought you were gonna say like why peter cut off the ear and why moses lost his temper (laughs) no i'm going for the villains 
I'm really interested. Do you think Herod knew it was Christmas time when he ordered the babies? To... <laughs> no, because he's Jewish. Yeah, yeah. No, Jews but uh, you know the way I'm. So, so what I'm doing with each of the characters is they each get a fictional reimagining of their story from their perspective, where they're the protagonist instead of the antagonist. And then I'll be doing a more traditional, like Christian or Christian living, like analysis. Uh, you know, let's talk about what the Bible said about them. Let's apply it to our lives and that kind of stuff. Uh, so anyway, yeah, with Herod, for instance, uh, the way I'm writing him, uh, just a little bit of a teaser, uh, it, it won't actually matter whether he thinks Jesus was the Messiah or not. Uh, even if he believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, he may have still chosen to do what he did. Hmm. Hmm. So. I'm excited. I'm writing. My manuscript is due September 1st. So I'm writing, 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 writing. I'm up to about 27,000 words Ooh. out of 55,000. Nice. Uh, so over halfway or over, about half, almost, almost halfway. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's really fun. You know, this has been a big life goal. People have listened to the story on for a long time. I've known I've long been the only unpublished pleb. And so I'm <laughs> finally joining your illustrious ranks. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, it's kind of a bummer because now instead of saying, now we're just gonna have to say, Storymen, a podcast hosted by three authors. <laughs> well, I'm not about to let JR time me, so I better crank out another book. Oh, me too. I'm gonna try and crank one out real quick. Oh, shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Uh, so it's very exciting. Uh, I'm, I love InterVarsity Press. Many of the authors we have on Storymen are IVP authors. And so I'm excited about the publishing house. It's been a great experience so far. I have an amazing editor there. My agent, David, has been taking great care of me. So, so far, it's been a really, really good experience. And uh, I've already been getting a lot of questions since I've announced it on Facebook. People are like, wait, how does this whole thing work? So um, I guess since I'm the first person to like be first published on this podcast we can kind of walk through it with me right yeah um, I, I didn't even have a book proposal when we first started this podcast and now i'm going all the way through the process so amazing and we will be talking so much more about this process this book and um jr if you'd be willing to come on the storyman and talk about it when the time comes we'd be honored to have you it's Thanks. been a it's been a life goal to be interviewed on the storyman about a book i'm writing uh, Matt and I are going to be out that week, so you're going to have to carry the show. <laughs> yeah. We'll find some guest hosts. <laughs> you guys Congratulations. Perhaps Emily Maynard will take my place again. <laughs> well, uh, super exciting news. And before we get to our awesome interview with Eric, uh, we got a little Storyman business to take care of. It is time, my friends, for Pop Culture Pig of the Week. Pop Pow! Uh, JR, guest star of the moment, what is your pal for this week? I haven't even started this book yet, but as of the day we are recording, End of Watch by Stephen King was just released. It's sitting on my Kindle. I haven't even cracked it. I didn't even read the preview they did in E-Weekly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm ready to dive into the third and final book of the Bill Hodges trilogy. Uh, My wife and I recently took a road trip to St. Louis over a weekend, and we listened to, because she has not read either book yet, so we listened to most of Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers. Uh, so I've, I've got them nice and refreshed in my mind. Clay, you recently just finished Mr. Mercedes. I did, and that was a rip-roaring good read. Um, nobody takes you inside people's brains like King. Yeah, so I can't wait for it. Well, should I go next? Go for um, it. 
Mine's an app, believe it or not. And uh, it's connected to your library, hopefully. It's called Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A. And uh, if your library is connected, it means that, like, I don't know if it works according to how much they've paid to be connected or whatever. But basically, I can get 12 free things a month that I just download onto my phone. So it's comic, uh, graphic novels, albums, movies, uh, ebooks. And so, like, when I'm about to travel, I can download a movie onto my phone for free. When I, uh, I've been catching up on all sorts of comics, reading them on, on Hoopla. And it's great. It's super easy to use, pretty mm. intuitive uh, interface. And it's completely free. And I've been loving it. So That's there you go. fantastic. Hoopla. I like that. I'm going to check that one out. We don't have too many apps on Papal, so way to bring us into the tech world. Yeah, 21st century, baby. Well, my pick is also a book. It's one that I've been reading this week, and I'm loving it from the director, Kevin Smith. It is his 2012 book, Tough Shit, Life Advice from a Fat, Lazy Slob Who Did Good. And I don't know, he might be a lazy slob, but he sure is a brilliant wordsmith. And it is, it's actually got a lot of heart. He starts off the whole beginning of the book talking about how he is his father's son and his father's life and how it ended sadly is one of the most formative experiences that he ever had. So he takes you through basically a history of the 90s movie industry, his role in it. He's very honest. I was telling JR, he's authentic, but he throws himself under the bus just as much as he'll throw someone else under the bus. Um, and he has these like epiphanies when he's like age 37, 38, which is my age right now. So there's a couple of chapters that I was just like, oh my goodness, I, I love that he was still on this like journey of professional self-discovery when he was my age, you know, and um, he's just super funny. He's yes, of course, crass and vulgar. If you're not into Kevin Smith movies, you're not going to watch a Kev- you're not going to read a Kevin Smith book. But if you do read the book, <laughs> consider consider the audio version because he just straight sets up in his living room with a, with a sound guy, and he's like, "You're going to hear noises outside, and I'm probably going to be stoned, and basically, you're going to get a lot of extra stuff I didn't write in the book. I'm just going to say it if I think it." So is, is a lot of his advice like become friends with Ben Affleck? No, not at all. He actually would say that he's only worked with one real movie star and it wasn't Ben Affleck. Oh, nice. <laughs> like it, that's what I'm saying. He, he always has that self-awareness that I think is so missing from Hollywood that even if I disagree with them or find something he says a little too crass, uh, I appreciate his sincerity, I guess I would say in his self-awareness. So yeah, tough shit from Kevin Smith. Oh, well, there you have it. Uh, we are really excited about our interview today. It is with Eric Loxmo, and he is a film producer, as Clay already said. The film that he has most recently worked on his last days in the, in the desert. However, as you will hear in the interview, his credits extend to quite a few other films, including several that we have discussed very favorably here on the Storyman podcast. So we're very excited for you to hear this interview with Eric. Uh, there are some mild spoilers for Last Days in the Desert, though it's not really a film that you Spoiler, can spoil. Jesus gets tempted. Yeah, right. I mean, so <laughs> and he dies. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so Main even if you haven't, dies. even if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the film yet, you'll enjoy it. We really wanted to talk about this film when we had Joshua Butler on a couple of weeks ago for his new book because he spends a lot of time talking about Jesus's wilderness temptations. But we decided to save it until we were going to have Eric on so that we could give the film its due because it is just a tremendously 
good film. Uh, we the didn't cinema- even talk about Lubezki. Yeah, I was just going to say the cinematographer is uh, Lubezki, who has done Inuritu's last three films. He's won Best Cinematographer three years in a row uh, at the Oscars, which is unheard of, and it's well-deserved. This film is just gorgeous. Yeah, so uh, I, we're going to go behind the scenes with Eric to find out what a producer does, and specifically for him as a person of faith in Hollywood, how he makes... Uh, how he helps really, really great provocative faith films get made. So uh, let's jump over to the interview with Eric. Joining us today is Eric Loxmo. Did I say that right? Beautiful. Oh, man. Eric, Nailed it. welcome to the story, man. We're going to talk about a film project that you have much to do with. Uh, Matt, you have made this connection for us. So how about a little, little preface here? Well, you know, uh, I was I was actually under the impression that Eric and I might barely know each other, and we were trying to figure it out before the show started. And we have a bunch of mutual friends because we grew up in the same area. But uh, Eric uh, works for a company that we'll ask him about in a little bit here called Different Drummer, and I saw his name when we're we're talking the movie we're talking about today, Last Days in the Desert. I saw Eric's name associated with it, and I said. I think I know that guy and then looked him up on Facebook. And I was like, we have like 50 mutual friends and they're all people kind of from where we grew up. So I reached out just to see if he wanted to be on the show. Cause we love the movie. And so th- it was kind of a weird connection in that. I thought I knew him better. I mean, we're getting to know each other now. I'll <laughs> 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 tell stories later about our mutual friends, maybe. Well, they're so, all uh, brilliant people though. That's a good thing. They're oh yeah. They're all excellent. Beautiful. So, uh, Eric, let's start out. We'll have you tell us a little bit about Different Drummer and the movie in a minute. But usually with our guests, we we ask them to start by telling us their geek credentials. Oh, yeah. So what do you got for us? What are you passionate about? How are you a geek? Oh, man, this is like high school again. I'm like, I'm the, I was the biggest geek in, in high school. <laughs> That's um, why I thought I knew you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I ran with. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I I geek out about a, a bunch of things like, um, you know, I I have this dream of someday having a garden and spending all my days reading books and drinking really good beer and smoking an occasional cigar. That sounds that doesn't sound very geeky, but I I feel like my ambitions over the years have been more and more inclined to how do I get alone into the woods and get back to nature and get rid of all this other stuff that I'm doing. Um, but I I, uh, I do love uh, time with my kids. I have three of them that are 12, 9, and 6. Um, wow. I think my hobby over the years has been moving. I should have invested into a, a U-Haul. Uh, U-Haul company would have been a great investment for me because I've moved from, let's see, D.C., L.A., D.C., L.A., New York, Nashville in the last seven years. <laughs> So wow. I've shipped my car, which is probably worth about a thousand bucks. It's actually cost more to ship it than its actual value as a car. <laughs> so that's, but yeah, I'm, I, um, you know, having a startup company, you tend not to have hobbies, but I do love a good Tintin comic book and, um, <laughs> listening to uh, really bad eighties music. Yes. Oh, give me what's, what are a couple of picks? What, what is your eighties flavor? Well, I mean, <laughs> Come on. This is like, this is too vulnerable. I mean, I could say Depeche <laughs> Mode and Pet Shop Boys and 
Duran Duran, but I actually, um, I think I peaked, I think I peaked, P-E-A-K-E-T, I think, right? Peaked in junior high. So like, I felt like seventh grade was my ultimate year. And then since then, it's all gone downhill. But seventh <laughs> grade, I was the man in my hometown. I was, I had, I had the popped collar. I had the peg pants. Yes. Nice. I listened to like George Michael, you know, guilty yes. feet, have no rhythm. <laughs> yes. But then since then it's all been like, you know, just barely hanging on after that junior high year. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's enough about me. I think you, you basically that's... listeners are now going like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. They're like, his credentials have been served. <laughs> good now they can trust you i hope so so well tell us you just you mentioned you're you're running a startup tell us a little bit about different drummer and last days in the desert well i mean i spent 12 years in politics and that was what i intended to do after college i was a graduate of westmont college in santa barbara and every kind of good wholesome American boy goes to politics after school to change the world. And I did that in 96 and spent 12 years writing speeches, being a press secretary on Capitol Hill for campaigns. And really uh, that was my start of understanding um, the brokenness of institutions and seeing, seeing the frustration of bureaucracies and complexity and people and personalities. I mean, you're working with, uh, likely the most um, powerful people in the world who have the frustration of having to try to pass bills and make things happen in a environment that's designed not to let that happen. Um, and so that's where I learned this um, two things, probably one is just how to navigate all that. And secondly, the power of the creative uh, it was in, in 2004 probably where I began to get really restless about the uh, fact that by the time something got to the house floor, like some topic, some issue, it's been shaped years before by movies and music and magazine stories and poetry mm. and whatever TV. Mm. So if, if we're out there trying to stop something like human trafficking or cloning or anything that has some kind of moral bedrock, it's been shaped long before by songs and stories. And I, as a creative person, began to think, okay, I want to be in a place where I'm at the fountainhead of the cultural stream, not the back end of the dam and the, the sludge that I'm dealing with hmm. in politics. That's really that's, interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Didn't answer your question at all, but... <laughs> so, Eric, what are a couple of the movies that you saw make an impact and you thought those inspire me to want to tell stories in this way that is morally meaningful. Wow. I, I think I just, um, it was more expansive than just a movie. I saw what the artists could do with hearts and minds. We had created a gathering in a bar outside of DC called, um, and the event was called brewing culture. And it was basically trying to get people that were suits and artists, White House people and, and uh, other staff and um, black and white. I mean, really trying to mix up the crowd to see what happens when you just have the arts presented in a way. A short film, a short set of music, 
some painter and really allow the audience to wrestle with these larger questions and, and ideas. And out of that came collaboration. So I sat back and really felt, okay, I know that, um, that this stuff moves me and that there is a, um, a power in the arts. Um, and maybe it's too agenda driven at that point, but I was really thinking, well, I, I would love to see artists, especially those in the church who are um, struggling with the idea of what to do with their art because they're being told to design the bulletin or sing in the choir or make art that is inspirational. But what about those arts that are really talking about honest things and, and going further than just the traditional view of what um, someone who's redemptive in their work uh, can do? So that led me into um, meeting some folks from Walden Media, which is the creator of the Narnia franchise, the film franchise, and books to film mostly. And I saw the first cut of the uh, Wilberforce film, Amazing Grace, William mm. Wilberforce, uh, the film. And that uh, took me took me days to shake that emotion of seeing that film. And that began that journey. Yeah, that was a great film. Thank you. Yeah, the story of Will Wilberforce, who led the the push for the British to outlaw the importation of slaves, right? Correct. Correct. Very hard movie to pitch in LA. So Mr. Anschutz who ran or funded Walden and the team there, it was his passion project to have a William Wilberforce story and being in politics. We all know that we all knew what William Wilberforce was and across the aisle, Democrat, Republican, many people had him as their patron saint in politics and mm -hmm. So, but in LA, you know, people are like, wait, you want to have a movie about a guy wearing a wig passing a bill? In <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's, it's called like, Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> hey, also a fine film. Whatever. Yeah. Just because yeah. Lincoln was our first president doesn't mean you have to love uh, him so much. Right, history troll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was it was interesting because at that point, I come in all guns ablaze and thinking, yes. And I went to these meetings in LA and they're like, um, this is not a priority for us. This is really, we're going to try to just dump this movie. And we, that gave us incredible permission. Those of us who are going to market it after it's done to basically break every rule. We had never marketed a movie before, but I knew the political world, which is basically, I've got to get a million people to do one thing on a single day to vote. So I can get a million people to do one thing on a single weekend to buy a ticket. Like that's pretty basic. I can get that. Uh, that idea, at least, seems basic enough. And so we began to use every political tactic that we knew in terms of not not partisan political, but how do you get people to to move and to respond and how do you get the messages and tracking and how do you build coalitions of audiences? And that that really is embedded into our work now at Different Drummer, which now eight, nine years later, um, we've always looked at where's the best art being made best storytelling by the best people for the best purposes. Um, and we've built these really broad coalitions of audiences that come together and experience films. Mm. I want people to see people. They have no resemblance and no like-mindedness together in the theater. That's the goal. Eric, can I ask, it seems like, so Last Days in the Desert, obviously, is the story of Yeshua or Jesus yeah. uh, during the last temptation. 
It's it's really different. It's beautiful, gorgeous film. Uh, but what you just said about uh, how do we bring different people together, the best storytellers telling the best stories, mm-hmm. like that's really, really different than what I hear from other, you know, quote unquote, Christian filmmakers. Like mm-hmm. a lot of times what I hear about is how do we get the Christian message strongest so that all the Christians will come and learn that atheists are evil or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what, tell us a little bit about Christian filmmaking today, how that's different than what different drummer, or, or the same, I don't know, than what different drummer tries to get in or, and what you personally try to get involved in. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, there's five different kinds that we've mapped, five different kinds of um, belief-centered films. You have, like you mentioned, you have your conversion films designed to by Christians to reach the wider world. Uh, we've seen those. You have the confirmation films, which are like a God's not dead, which is basically a bumper sticker. You're saying to people, by coming to the movie theater, you're going to sh- send a message back to LA that we are here and we're large and we're not going to take it anymore. And we're going to, we want films like this and we're a force to be reckoned with. Nothing, again, these are nothing wrong with that in per se. Like it's, it's a strategy though. The third is the, is the um, so the first one's conversion to belief, second one's confirmation of belief, third one is commercialization um, around belief, which is I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna take a widely known biblical story as a studio and spend a lot of money to make it the biggest spectacle possible. Now the challenge with that, of course, as we all know, is that when you do Exodus and Noah, you're talking about stories that they're so big that everyone has an opinion about them. So you can't, you can't really be too out of the box because that's what happened on those other films is that everyone begins to critique and you have this big controversies and then it ends up spiraling out of control and the studio gets frustrated and all this. You can't really control the film. Then the last two, which is what we focused on a different drummer is causation from belief. So you think about a Selma, um, amazing grace, Blindside. there's something in a biopic that has typically that there's a conviction, a core belief, a deep sense of um, their faith that leads to action that anybody could say that's worthy. The last piece is where last days falls in. And that's the conversation around belief. And we've always believed that there's a space between that mass and crass film and the teach and preach film. There's a middle space that, is yet to be proven, which is why we're, you know, we're always experimenting is because you can't just go to one place and find that audience. It's a total mosaic of people, but it's smarter films. It's soulful people. They are looking to be engaged with head, heart and soul. And they want a conversation. And that's what last days was all about. That was just a brand investment and a deposit into that space to say, Let's have a dialogue about these themes and Mm -hmm. stories. So can you talk a little bit, I'm sure we'll circle back to this, but can you talk a little bit about how you guys got specifically involved with last days uh, and where, because I, what I think is interesting about the film, well, one of the, I don't know, a million things that I think is interesting about the film is that the filmmaker himself has been on record as saying that he is not, doesn't consider himself like a believer. He didn't mm-hmm. make this as a quote unquote conversion film or something like that. Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys got involved with it and what that process looked like? Yeah, we were handed the script by a friend of ours who had been a producer on tree of life 
one of our uh, I other love films. that movie so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> these films like that are either people love them or hate them. We had people walk out of the theater on Tree of Life. We had people who wept in their seats because it was so profound. Yeah. So the Calvary, another film we worked on. I mean, there's these. Oh my gosh, Eric! Every movie you're mentioning, <laughs> I went to. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I went to Calvary with my wife on date night, and uh, <laughs> after the movie, I was so wrecked. Like we literally, we went to out to dinner, and I was sitting there just staring off into space. <laughs> my wife was like, "This was a bad idea," and I actually called Jr. I was like, "You have to go to this movie, dude. It just messed me up so much. Like it's funny and charming and good and heart crushing and beautiful. Yeah. That was so good." Okay. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Uh, just, and just to be clear, we we were asked to to market those, and what happens is when you begin to market that, people say, "Oh, you know that audience." There's an audience that exists. Um, so when we were handed the script from Last Days, it's a 65-page script. As you guys know, it's that's a very small script for an hour and a half yeah. uh, plus movie. And I felt that it needed to have some some people I respected to read it. So I I love I tend to fall in love with everything. Um, if if um, with film, I tend to fall in love with movies before I should. But I had some folks read it, and they came back and said, there's nothing heretical about this. There's certainly things that would be um, worthy of discussion and digging deeper, but there's nothing that's going to be offensive to your company and your mission. We went into production, and that was amazing. We're out in California on this cliffs, and we took a couple of um, influential kind of tastemakers from the spiritual world community, like Fuller Seminary folks, um, some... Uh, different bloggers and and um, kind of personalities, and Ewan McGregor walks up in co- in full full uh, costume, and he's like, "Well, here's the Christians," <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had like I just I, I was I did not want the cast and crew and all this to be thinking, "Okay, here's the here come the Christians," you know, kind of thing. Let's, let's all not make sure we don't smoke on set or something, you know, <laughs> something ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, very sparse out there. And there's only two tents, one for the catering and then one for uh, Ty Sheridan's, basically his, his school, his classroom where he was studying. And then you'd come in on these military grade vehicles, big Humvees to come into this spot and you're driving along dry riverbeds basically to get there. But he was, I said to him, Hey, we're, if there's anything, we're the Christians who drink beer. I mean, we're the, we're just trying to explain to him that there's this audience that wants this kind of art. And that started the whole process. We went to Sundance, as you know, premiered there, had a thousand people at two screenings each um, who, who loved it. And I think that was surprising for Sundance to see this kind of movie do so well. And finally got our distributor and, and then have been um, out doing select events. And it's just been an incredible process for us. And we're executive producers on this, so we, which basically means we paid some bills, and then we help market, and then we help do these events um, in theaters. Uh, so this isn't really a question or anything. I just want to go on record as saying all three of the films that that you have named are films that I routinely list as like some of my favorite. I, and I say Christian films, but I say movie movies that Christians can watch that help them think more profoundly about faith. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So all 
thank you. This is all those films are fantastic, and for me, are a breath of fresh air compared to the other kinds of films you mentioned, like the conversion films and those. I uh, I and I really struggle to engage those movies as a pastor. You know, I have people in my church saying, Hey, are you going to go see, you know, the latest war room or whatever? And I'm always like, Oh, I feel like I have to, cause you're gonna, and I have to be able to talk about it with you, but I, could we maybe just watch Philomena together instead? Yeah. Yeah. Like, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's strange because we, we, um, what we're doing, it's, it's, it's not a either or it's a both ends. So I, I've maybe matured in my sanctification of saying there's people who like those and they minister to some people, but here's the problem with them more than anything is that it it's training the industry to say, that's what Christians want and like, and that's all they like. And secondly, it trains the audience to think that's art and art should be easy to digest and to accept. And you walk out and you feel good. And I have always believed that art doesn't give you answers. It just gives you questions. And there has to be huge margins for the audience to walk out and go, I have no idea. Like you said, like um, it was Clay or Matt who said um, when they walked out of, of Calvary that they were stunned and haunted by it. And that's, that's a view of art that doesn't allow you just to sit back and enjoy and walk out and forget about it two hours later. And think that's important for us. I think part of what was so moving about these different movies, Calvary, and I think this was true of Last Days as well, is that they're not reflecting. I feel like what they're not doing is saying, here's something that's here's a philosophical point of view that you have to agree with, even if the world looks different than than this. Mm-hmm. What it's saying is, here's a true thing in life. Like here's something. Which is really funny talking about last days in a way, because it's almost like a uh, last days really played almost like experimental theology, like an alternate reality. Like, here's how it could have gone down, you know. Hmm. Uh, But at the core of it, I felt like a lot of what the movie was about was this truth, like the truth of the messiness of parent child relationships and of trying to follow God when it seems like he's silent. And of where is God when someone is dying? Where is the power of God when he's sitting right there? Like those sorts of questions that, yeah, I it was. I walked out of the theater. I had invited, I think maybe five of my friends were there. And we walked out and we're standing there in the theater like uh, for like 20 minutes just talking about it. Like what was going on? What did it make you think about? Hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's really beautiful and different than a movie that's preaching to you. Like here's here's the three takeaways, you know. Yeah, and Matt, that's that's a huge compliment to, to um, the film. I think that's the goal of the director, who, um, as you said earlier, is is not someone who um, would describe himself as a um, a believer. He's highly respectful of the faith. He calls himself a secular Catholic. He understands the core story, and we, as those who believe in the gospel story. Um, tried to be very respectful about about allowing the artist in Rodrigo to do what he say we wanted to say and allow the audience to interpret. We we've been asked several times to explain. Can you explain the um, the roaches or the or the hummingbird or the last scene? And we don't give our. I have my own answer, but I don't give a perspective from the film and the filmmakers because <laughs> uh, I really don't think it's our job. And it allows me to hear every interpretation that people have. 
Um, yeah. So it's it's yeah it's a it's a there's there's those who hate the movie. I've been called a blasphemous. Um, it's a blasphemous, satanic, empty, trivial film on one side, and then there's the NPR, uh, New York Times, even plugged in, has said it's a beautiful film that, um, and the Washington Post story, which was unbelievable. If you really wanted to see the Calvary Selma Tree of Life connection with uh, Last Days, the Washington Post did a feature about, and they, I think it was called um, Christian Films for the Rest of Us. And it was all about these kind of films that are widely appealing to those who have, yes, a deep conviction of faith, but they don't want easy answers and trite characters and um, trivial storytelling. Hmm. I ask you about that because like you said, you worked marketing on a couple of these kinds of films and they said, my, you must know the audience. And as somebody who has really run the gamut, like all three of us have on this show of kind of knowing what those terrible Christian movies are like, have been like in the past, what some honest efforts have been like that haven't been executed well. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, even your conversation where you just hear such a casual remark from you and McGregor, you know, about the perceptions that are out there. What do you really think is um, the, the most common attitude now in 2016, as, as hopefully more and more people are gaining this understanding, like that, that newspaper series you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. what do you think is the average perspective like ranging from the passion of the Christ until today of what Christianity is based on the way art reveals it to this culture. Oh, wow. Uh, Clay, that's an, that's an amazing question. I'm not sure I'm qualified to, to give you that. Um, I can just tell you what I I'm sensing and seeing from my perspective. And um, I know there's several writers who have um, Elijah Davidson and others who, you know, Maka Fujimara who've done, deeper writings on this. Um, I, I think that from a studio perspective, the big pushback is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to put the money and the time into these kind of movies? Because all we get is controversy. So on a larger perspective, we're going to see less and less of big movies that are biblical epics. Mm. I think Ben-Hur may be one of the last ones. And maybe I'm wrong. I probably am. I just think it's going to be a challenge when you can make Hangover 5 or the next Avengers versus <laughs> why would we do that? That's one thing. And, and typically these things are being made because there's some top level leader in the studios who does want to see them made. It's not like the staff and the rank and file marketing people are saying, yes, bring me more of that. Now, one film that I think is going to be fascinating to watch is the Scorsese silence movie, which will be out, I think later on this year. That's and one of some of our good friends films. and partners are investing in that and producing it. So that's going to be interesting to see what, where that falls. Um, so that's an industry perspective. It's like fascination with the idea that this stuff makes money. Cheaply made stuff can make a lot of money. Um, so there's, there's respect for the fact that it's business. Uh, they have no interest in understanding who that audience is and what they believe. They still think it's a Joel Osteen, Rick Warren world what's one big button you push for the mm-hmm. faith community so we've been telling people like listen it's it's like the united nations you walk in there's a there's a thousand different 
customs, beliefs, languages. Um, and it's not like you can just talk to one of them and get the same message to everybody in the room. You have to be very surgical, very, very, um, um, sort of nimble in your approach to messaging and storytelling. Uh, so that's, I think from the, there's respect for the money. There's not a respect for the core message. Um, they don't respect the art of it. And the audience though, as, as I said before, my concern there is um, in a time when people are more fearful and we want to be around people that we know and that are like us, the theatrical experience is becoming more and more of a rally of your own. Mm. You think about it. If you're Star Wars, it's true. It's the Star Wars fans together makes that a huge, huge success, historic success. Or your war room, you know, you look around, you say, okay, these people are all like me. They're all Christians in some way. So the idea of films that don't have the like-minded people in the room, I don't think are going to work theatrically. Mm. Why would you do that? I had a friend of mine who's a producer well-known producer who who was in the theater at our favorite theater and someone walked in late and sat behind them a couple seats and the whole time she was unnerved by this person nothing happened didn't say anything didn't act normal but just felt uneasy and that's going to have more and more people are like i don't want to be in strange places with strangers so where are the movies that are going to be my people so i can look around and feel like it's it's for for us um so that's going to be, and get a little bit off of your question, but I think that's going to be the strategy going forward is making content for the niches. As someone said, there's riches in the niches. Um, <laughs> that's true. It's going to be the, the fact going forward. Right. Uh, so I guess more specifically, uh, and maybe I think this would be a question for all of us, um, but Eric, I'd like to hear your thoughts first. Like what, specifically as a person of faith, what did you connect to in the final film? For the last days, it, I mean, I, I've been, I've been moved by the, um, the son of man side of this story, because that's always been the intention is, is can we create a film that's deeply human? Although understanding that fully man, fully God, I think it's the first film that accurately captures the cold, the wind burn, the dust in the eyes, um, that kind of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus was, it's hard for us as Christians to get our head around that. We, For some reason, we have a very easy time of getting our head around and stories around the miracles of Jesus, which is a little bit baffling. And Rodrigo would say this, he goes, I can understand the human side. I don't understand the divine side. Now we, we take it so lightly, like, oh, he healed the, the blind man with mud and spit. I mean, it's a little bit extraordinary that we would think that, but we're very uncomfortable with the humanity of Jesus. Did Jesus have a chisel that sliced his hand? Did he get uh, some sand in his shoes? Did his feet hurt? Did he have that frustration of the windstorm blowing sand in his face? Mm -hmm. um, and the one the other thing that really struck me was um, we have to know that, that Jesus in his ministry walked past people and saw people that, that were looking to be healed, but he did not heal them. Um, 
and think that is interesting as you think about a restraint upon providence and a restraint on the um, divinity of Christ to not try to fix everything. So in the story of last days, he doesn't save the father, he doesn't fix the son, he doesn't save the mother, even though he tended to and she pushed him away. Um, that's interesting to me that that a God-man who could do that could fix everything. And even Satan in that story says, you could have lifted that, could have saved that man and you chose not to. Um, but I love the idea that theological discussion around restraining, the restraint of providence, restraint of his sovereignty to fix everything. That's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I'm, I think the, the one moment that was so, so memorable for me was when the father offers his son the riddle mm. and then the son kind of just like ignores it because of exactly what you were saying. That's, there's no, um, there's no way to fix that. That's not a deus ex machina, right? Like unless Jesus rewired their brains or something, you can't instantly repair a mm. damaged relationship. Mm. Like that's not how humans work. And so just the idea of putting someone that the film allows the possibility that he is fully divine, like Christians confess him to be, in a position where just raw miracle working power doesn't actually fix anything, I found very provocative. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just, uh, I don't know, moving because... I recognize the father's desperation to connect with his son, the son's bitterness over the years of being denied, like who he purely is. And so that even when the father begins to try, the son can't see it almost. And again, that Jesus yeah. can't, he can't just like wave his hands and fix that. He can't spit in some mud and make that better. Uh, I, so I, I, I was just, I, I was very affected by that. I thought it was excellent. Mm. What about Matt or Clay? What? I think for me, it was, it was probably two things. One, Eric, you were actually probably both of them, Eric, you were kind of talking about a little bit. One is that I, I think there is this conception that Jesus did his 40 day fast in the wilderness. And it was this beautiful time of being close to God and he's preparing himself for ministry and then Satan kind of came along at the end and, you know, Jesus kind of stood up and said, hey, I'm not going to do those things. Mm -hmm. And they started his ministry. But uh, my experience in talking to others, like, I think a lot of times those sorts of things, like 40 days in the desert doing fasting is not one of feelings of intimacy with God. And I think the movie presented my experience much more closely, which is, a time of feeling disconnected, a time of feeling uncertain, a time where why isn't God lighting something on fire and speaking to me out of a bush? Mm. Uh, and that felt more honest and real to me. That felt like my experience and what I think is probably more likely to have been true for Jesus. It wasn't a time of deep intimacy, maybe at the end, but not for four. It wasn't 40 days of beautiful visions. You know, mm -hmm. it sucks to not eat for 40 days. And it doesn't make you stronger. It doesn't make you better or more spiritually attuned. It makes you irritable. It makes you angry. Mm. It makes you uncertain of things. So that was one aspect where I was like, oh, this movie, and, and it is, it does come down to understanding humanity and understanding that Jesus was a person, 
not a not just a saint. Uh, and then the other side, for sure, I've got a bunch of stuff in my life that is consistently just sticking a finger in the question of why doesn't God heal? Why doesn't God resurrect? Why doesn't God intervene? And seeing Yeshua in that movie, his clear compassion and love for those three people and the where he where he offered to intervene and where he sat back and let them make the decision of allowing him to be in their lives i thought was really beautiful and mm. was uh moving to me as someone who is walking through some of those things right now yeah wow clay yeah i think I did definitely pick up on a couple of new angles of the humanity of Jesus. I think because he was in the presence of such a father and son relationship, we're, we're getting a lot of echo again. Can we check the echo and not start over? I don't hear it. I don't hear it either, Clay. That's so it. weird. It was so strong. Okay, sorry. Start over. Um, for me, definitely seeing the new aspect of Jesus's humanity from the perspective of how much time I watched him with a father and son made me think of Jesus as an earthly son. That was one interesting side of his humanity, but clearly for me, the most compelling scene was the conversation over the campfire. Basically McGregor has with himself between his portrayal of Yeshua and his portrayal of the devil. And that was just so fascinating to me, this idea that, Humanity is so cyclical. Our lives are basically all the same within a certain margin of error. And it's like the cycle of destruction that this tempter observes from his perspective. Um, that was just an interesting take on, I guess, the nature of, of what this tempter was. For me, I found that really compelling. And I'd love to watch that scene again, probably as much as any other part of the movie, which, which really wrapped, kept me in rapt attention the entire way. Hmm. Yeah, but that is a uh, it's a very screw tape moment in that you're hearing the reversal of the uh, defamation of the father by the devil, but it's actually a praise of what his attributes are. Uh, it was yeah, it's a great scene. Eric, can you can you just talk a little bit about the decision to have McGregor play both Yeshua and the Tempter? And then also the decision by the filmmaker not to include the resurrection, although he includes the the crucifixion and burial. Yeah, it's been interesting because there wasn't an attempt to cast this for who's going to play Jesus. Uh, Rodrigo and Ewan were friends. They were um, on holiday together, and Rodrigo had the script and was reluctant to show it to, to Ewan. And then in the producers uh, that helped Rodrigo um, got it to him. And, and as Ewan says, you know, when you say to, and Rodrigo says to him, Hey, you're not going to like it. You don't want to play this. Um, it's, it's throwing a red rag in front of a bowl for an actor. <laughs> so Ewan was intrigued. Um, that takes a lot of the pressure off of a white Jesus because it wasn't an attempt to cast Jesus and, in some role that would fit the time. It's really meant to be artful and put you outside of that 
and have just one interpretation. Uh, so when when Rodrigo was writing the the script, he needed to have an antagonist. He needed to have some one to process Yeshua's thoughts with and to speak to about this deeper side of life. And it just came to him to have, um, well, he knew the devil had to be there. And then he thought, wow, interesting to have the devil come in, in the guise of Yeshua. And what's interesting about the movie as you watch it is, is Ewan's longtime friend and stunt double, who's a good actor himself, is in those scenes uh, when you don't see his face. Um, so there's at the fireside or the behind the shoulder kind of shots. It's his friend who's playing, who looks like him and plays same height and build and all that. And they worked a lot of hours on that back and forth dialogue. So they really could capture the emotions. I mean, if you're just sitting in front of a camera and trying to have this emotion, the compassion, the anger, the confusion, the, um, the banter, I don't think it'd work as well. So that was interesting to have Ewan and his, um, someone like him and knows him. Um, and the, the crucifixion resurrection, it was, we've had several people say that they wish the movie ended when they're walking away from each other in the desert. But there's several problems if you, if you stop there. Yeah. Um, and, and I technically I would say you have two things. One is the pure side of the woman that makes sense when you see it in the, the crucifixion scene and the statement by the devil that I will come to you in the end. If you need me, I'll help you down. Well, he comes in the form of the hummingbird. Right. Um, so that was important. Though you, the, the Rodrigo was very clear that he wasn't going to have what he calls crucifixion porn, which mm-hmm. was basically this long, sweeping shots that kept you there. He wanted to make it very simple, very quick, and then move on. And he stops at the, um, the family friends at the tomb. And then, of course, the last scene is always a debate. But um, I think he wanted to make sure the audience knew that which I really appreciated is that, that this is not just a holy man who happened to be in the desert. This is the Christ. Yeah. Uh, that was important for him to close up that part of it. Yeah. It was interesting. Like, I feel like it had already showed Jesus to be such a deeply spiritual, holy person. I didn't have any doubt that he was Jesus Messiah, uh, but I was surprised that it didn't have the resurrection. But you know what's interesting? The thing that like stuck with me that I was like, no, something deeper is being said, which I don't know if this was on purpose. But you know, in the accounts of Christ being buried, there's one stone put over the tomb. And in the film, he was out with these uh, these people working with stone, like stone cutters. And the, the tomb is filled with stones like the stone cutters were cutting and something about they were building a house right Mm -hmm. and and the father kept saying in the desert you have once someone dies somewhere it becomes their home and they were building a house there and Mm. so to me i felt like when those stones were being put in while jesus was dead what it was saying is jesus has now died there and god will never leave this place it's his home uh he's built it here and for me, that was sufficient. That was that was actually a, a beautiful. Obviously, uh, I, 
coming completely out of the symbolism. For me, that was a really beautiful moment, actually. And I was almost relieved that I, the resurrect because the resurrection wasn't there, I had to stop and think, like, what is going on? And that's what I felt like I came to. And I, I was thankful for it. Wow, that's yeah. that's I love that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, Eric, we need to wrap up. I feel like we could have you on a lot in the future to talk about these things and other movies and so on. But could you just, uh, for our, view- our viewers, our listeners at home, could you tell us if they want to find out more about the movie or different drummer, where where should they go online? Yeah, lastdaysinthedesert.com is the film site. We'll be out in home entertainment, which is relief for everybody who has been waiting patiently sometime in um, likely in August. Uh, so look for that. It's a fast turnaround. Differentdrummer.com is our, our film site. And of course, I'd always welcome anybody who wants to um, connect. My, uh, my Twitter handle, personal one, is just at Eric Locksmo, E-R-I-K-L-O-K-K-E-S-M-O-E, or at Different, and then it's D-R-M-R, Different Drummer. Thanks, Eric. You've been spectacular. We'd love to having you on the show. Guys, it's a uh, pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah, so thanks, everybody. That was episode 133 of Storyman. We look forward to seeing you next week. This is a song about the three story men. Life is a story we're all living in. So now that you know the story. Sometimes there's a man, rather, sometimes there's some men, and I'm talking about the story men here, and I know what you're thinking, those are some tall fellers, I don't know if that's